0: We're joined today to discuss the impact of media concentration and social media on American and Australian politics. Stephanie Zenegamar is the Democrats Abroad Australia Global Black Caucus Chair and a lifelong lover of politics. Tess Connery is a journalist for Media Week, Australia's Media Industry Bible, and a former breakfast host for 2SER 107.3 in Sydney. Ed Blakely is a former Washington Insider an internationally recognized leader in urban development and planning, advisor and author. And my name is Sean Britton, radio journalist and co-host of the podcast, US of Ed.
1: Well, colleagues, because one doesn't say I have two uh, ladies but these days we're going genderless or <laughs> Uh, and that's not the important feature. The important thing here in this uh, set of programs, series, is podcasts, and we've done several already. We'll open up for the full year around starting in April because we want to have a, a backlog of, of these around certain themes. And the theme we're talking about just now is the media, which will be very appropriate to open up because. The media is shaping how people view Australia from the United States. The media is shaping how the United States uh, views the world at this juncture. And the media is the message, as Marshall McLuhan said. Uh, So let's get out, I wanna start with the first part of this is how did Trump reshape the media and the message? Stephanie,
2: Look, I think Trump really opened up a new era where people became aware of the power of social media and the power of Twitter and the power of uh, one individual to really bypass some of the traditional gatekeepers and channels that we had for you know a couple hundred years since the, you know, the first printed newspaper. Where all of a sudden it wasn't the media and you know capital T capital M com- controlling the na- the narrative is one individual really kind of untethered and uncensored and you know, unhinged at times (laughs) uh, (laughs) wanted out to the people directly via via Twitter. So he really did reshape how people consume information whether it's correct information or false information.
1: Tess, speaking of falseness, there was a very big false uh, information uh, approach but it didn't stop in the United States. We had some of it here in Australia. There are people out, there's now the anti-vaxxers and other groups trying to create their information. I saw something the other day where somebody says, we have discovered here in Australia how to cure COVID, all the other stuff is fake. How has fake news influenced Australia?
3: Yeah, I mean, Australia historically does like to follow in the footsteps of America to an extent, doesn't it? And the sheer amount of falsehoods that Trump was spewing at one point there, uh, you know, the, there were a couple of different numbers that got tossed around, but all of them were just far too high to sort of wrap your head around. And when you've got that many lies coming at you, quicker than you can fact check them, things are going to go through to the keeper. Um, you know you can only focus on so much in a situation like that and I think a lot of uh, you know people around the world not even necessarily just in Australia a lot of, of outlets and a lot of individuals saw that this strategy I guess if you want to call it of just putting too much information out there to fact check was actually working in a lot of ways it was getting the narrative that Trump and the Republicans wanted, or, you know, again, like you mentioned, the anti-vaxxers, anybody who who's sort of taken this strategy up, it's getting the message out there because there's just too much information to 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 fact check. So I think it is something that if you if you had said, you know, five, 10 years ago, the best way to do this is to just completely lie until you can't lie anymore. Um, People would have laughed laughed at you, but we've seen this strategy in action, and we've seen it work. We've seen the impact that it does have. So I think, uh, you know, if you are going to go on, on, I think it's uh, I think it is going to go on. I think it's going to be very hard to shake. Uh, maybe it won't go on forever, but again, if you are in one of these positions and you've seen how much success people have had with just spreading this information without any rhyme or reason. I think you'd be mad not to
1: try it out yourself. <laughs> I think well, well the, both uh, of you, go ahead,
0: Sean. I was gonna say, I think, yeah, the genie is well out of the bottle in that sort of circumstance. It sort of reminds me what you're saying, Tess, of the old quotation, uh, a lie can be halfway around the world, you know, before the truth has its pants on. I do question though, why it is that the, the truth tellers or some aspects of, of truth tellers or uh, different sides of politics, seem to struggle with their messaging getting their messaging out through the same mediums as these ones that are relying on a great deal of falsehoods and more emotive claims
2: one of the things things that's really interesting about that is that and not to kind of put people into an either or camp but traditionally you know the more i guess old school democrats have kind of gone through the more traditional media channels you know they're pushing their message out through network and cable news outlets that are more established and traditional. So they kind of have the, um, I guess they're just more traditional in terms of how they're releasing their story. Whereas, you know, Trump really did create shockwaves in this landscape. And he really did disrupt that sort of messaging style. Can can we bring it back? We don't know if we can, because I think, again, it might have to do with where people find their commonality or where they're, you know, the things that they are that they align to. So for example, I don't necessarily go to Donald Trump's Twitter feed when he had one to get my news because that did not align with my values and my beliefs and what I wanted to see every day. However, I would happily watch CNN or, you know, MSNBC or some of the liberal media sources as they got You're true that's where I found my truth. So how do we get people, you know, in a world where we really have thousands of different outlets and channels and Twitter feeds and whatnot, back to that kind of older style of news and journalism, where it's the four networks in the U.S. or the, you know, the eight networks or the, you know, the the main papers of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and the Tribune as, you know, newspapers of record, where really it's become so splintered and fractured and fractured that, Everybody, anyone with an opinion can put it up, up on Twitter and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I heard the world was flat. Really? Oh, well, well, people just re- retweeted that. So maybe it is like, hang on a second. And you don't have that same rigor that we are, that traditional- well, But
1: but understanding all that, it makes tests, it makes the notion of voting very hard. Because what am I voting for? I get a presentation. This person's to the left, they're to the right, they're for Large, because I just saw it the other day, where someone in U.S. Congress was saying, "Black people are against families." What? <laughs> Before the Congress, uh, knowing that that would be a soundbite. Mm-hmm
3: yeah i think i think you're right i think there's always been an element of uh, you know politicians lying to get their way i don't think that's anything new what i think is new is the extent of the claims that get made in uh, in efforts to you know win votes or, or whatever it is they may be setting out to do um you know one, once upon a time it, it would have been claims i don't know you know however far back you want to look but um these days, you know, it's it's vote for me because the election is rigged, you know, and and we will, you know, we will, I will actually I'm not actually sure what their point is. But you know, we vote for us because the election is rigged, etc. So it's a strange situation, particularly in America, um, because there's that they don't have the preference voting system. Um, I think that it has going to have an impact as well.
1: Do you think? Now, Americans in journalism who are people like you are paid to do information. But there are other people like me. Podcasts, I'm not paid to do information. Kind of every flower can bloom, right?
3: Absolutely, yeah. You know, Um,
1: with YouTube and this tube and that tube and so on. uh, How will a young person be able to discern the source of truth?
3: It's a big question. I think young people, I think, uh, particularly the generation coming up uh, who are, you know, sort of teenagers and and Uh young adults right now are incredibly technologically savvy. And I like to have hope that, um, you know, they are going to be a lot a lot better at sort of picking where the truth lies uh, than perhaps, you know, we uh we we think straight off the bat. But yeah, when you do have this oversaturation of people giving information, it can be very, very difficult to pick through it all, impossible to pick through all of it and uh, and and work out exactly what is right and wrong. Would it, and-
1: be, would it be a good idea for us in high schools and so forth to have people start their own radio and television programs so they learn about how you craft messages and craft the truth
2: I think it's important for children at you know starting very early I have a four-year-old son and the amount of information and things that he's getting from YouTube kids and all these different sources I think you just have to start kids really early learning what's opinion and what's fact Mm -hmm. and really understand the difference between someone putting up on YouTube, you know, some brain dump of what they feel that day (laughs) versus what you might read in a paper of record like the Sydney Morning Herald and understanding the sources of information that are going to be coming at them at a million miles an hour and then how to really kind of question, well, where is that coming from? How did they get this information? Where's the data to support what they're saying? Versus someone who just wants to stand up, stand essentially on a street corner and yell into the abyss, which is basically what YouTube is. I
1: mean, just but remember, young people are spending more time with the tube than they are with their parents.
2: Yeah, hundred percent. I'm guilty of that a hundred percent. Giving my son the phone while we're in the car, and you know, watch what you know, watch what you want within reason, but. That's why I think we really do have to teach our children even before they get to high school. You know, before they have to write that first book report. Yeah. Where they how, yeah how, how do
1: school. we craft this test? Your media Week is for all media, right?
3: We are. We are. Yes. I I agree with Stephanie. I think um, maybe the way to go about it is, you know, you 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 take it uh, further ahead, even earlier than high school. But I don't think necessarily you go ahead with. Uh, getting students to, to make their own radio or TV program, I think where that energy would probably be better spent is teaching critical thinking, mm-hmm. uh, media literacy, going down that line instead of, you know, because just because they know how it works, I think doesn't necessarily mean people will then go ahead and, you know, perhaps they, they say, oh, well, I know how this is done fantastic so that's how this person does it therefore everything they say is true and who knows where that could end up I think um critical thinking skills and media literacy are, are very important and are going to be increasingly so because like you said there is just so much content out there these days
1: there's so much information I would call it all content <laughs> maybe it's disinformation uh so you know in my year we read uh, ni- 1984 mm-hmm. you know the information the ministry of truth <laughs> was Actually, just spread circling falsehoods
0: back, uh, circling back on on sort of the part of the point you were making earlier there about you know people like yourself and myself putting podcasts out there in the world from outside of media organizations i think that's an interesting one to revisit when we're talking about you know the media literacy and the glute of information that's out there because uh, for one obviously that increases the amount of, of information that's out there But on the other hand of that, when the internet first came in, it was kind of seen as this possible great equalizer. Yes. Everyone would have this equal voice, uh, you know, podcasts, uh, YouTubes, whatever it is, blogs, obviously back then, because it was mostly written words. It was seen as the great equalizer, but we haven't really seen that dream come to the fore. So when we're discussing some of these bits and pieces about the glut of information, I think it's worth remembering traditional media, those, those media stalwarts, uh, whether for good or bad, are still securing their position front and centre in the conversation that is happening online. I mean, we've seen the latest debate around Facebook and media companies being paid on Facebook. That was mainstream media companies that were were leading that charge and still trying to gain and, and sort of forcing themselves in front of as many eyeballs as possible. So we still have those traditional media sources really dominating the conversation.
1: But but let's, let's turn this... Australia first. Facebook shut them down. Shut them down. Did that happen in to the U.S. too, or is it just a Australian phenomenon? And if not, if it's only an Australian phenomenon, should it be recommended? Because I'd like to see some newspapers uh, in my wife's hometown have disappeared. Mm.
3: It was uh, just an Australian thing. It didn't happen overseas. It was in response to the um, mandatory bargaining, media bargaining code laws that uh, the Explain government... more about
1: this, because some of our listeners are in the US, so they're not going to know about
3: it. Oh, of course. Uh, so the idea behind the mandatory bargaining code law was, there was a lot of nitty gritty, but really the, the major point it came down to was the government uh, saying that publishing platforms, Google and Facebook being the two big ones, uh, should be paying Australian news organisations for their content. So, uh, you know, our our sort of ABC, Sydney Morning Herald, uh, you know, The Guardian, The Australian, the big, well, as well as some of the smaller ones, but mostly bigger media organisations should be paid. Uh, For the content, because the idea was that people are visiting Google and Facebook to get their news. Uh, As you can imagine, this didn't make Google or Facebook very happy. Google threatened to pull out of the country. They didn't end up doing that. And Facebook threatened uh, that if we have to pay for news, then I guess we'll just ban news. And no one really took them seriously until we woke up on a Thursday to find we had no news on Facebook. Um, it lasted about a week before our, uh, um, well, there was a couple of government ministers got on the phone with Mark Zuckerberg and sorted it out. And we've got news back now. But uh, for a week there, it was a little bit of the Wild West, not really knowing what was going on.
1: But, but, but this is instructive, I think, for the United States. If you're living in a small town in Iowa mm. and you're getting, doesn't matter whether it's Fox or MSNBC, you don't know, know what's going on in Iowa. Right. Yes. Beth, how do yes. people in the smaller communities get news anymore?
2: That's a real, you know, a real um, issue because you know we're not paying what we should for our news out- outlets, and we're not paying our journalists what we should be paying them. Personally, you know, when I like, I'm one of those old school people who I still like to read a newspaper, it doesn't happen very often, but I still actually subscribe to the digital edition of the Sydney Morning Herald and the New York Times and the Washington Post because I value the service and getting news and being able to read, you know, more than 10 free articles a month. But I think we need to get people back into the habit of either buying a newspaper or thinking of, I'm going to buy today's content from this But newsletter. what about
1: the smaller buy. town, Waterloo, Iowa, or Jonestown, Mississippi? They used to have a newspaper. Uh, those newspapers, the independent ones are gone. How do we get that back? Because I think that was a source of real debate because you know what's going on the school board. You know what's happening with the soccer teams and so on. Isn't that what democracy is about? In being informed about how you can participate, right? Is, is that going to happen from this code?
3: Uh, as in, will... Uh,
1: the Aubrey newspaper come back? The Murray Times or whatever it was.
3: I think that was the idea, but um, at, at the same time, I'm not I'm not too sure because you know with COVID coming through, any money that was going to go through to these companies after COVID, you know, there was there's so many places that it, it could be dispersed to. I'm not sure it would go towards. Refunding uh, you know, some of the smaller newspapers that got shut down and a couple of years ago, there was uh, quite a big cut of local newspapers as well, that um, we haven't necessarily seen reversed, I think we are seeing. a sort of a rise of more independent smaller Community newspapers and newsletters. Um, I know uh, in uh, in my hometown where where my parents are. There's um you know there's like a little community newsletter. I'm not actually sure who runs it to be honest. I should find out. But probably it,
1: volunteers. Uh, so.
3: Probably volunteers, uh, and it ends up in people's mailboxes and things like that, which is really good um, because even before the Facebook news ban. Um, A lot of older residents who didn't want to or didn't know how to use Facebook Mm -hmm. um, were already sort of suffering some of the effects that you mentioned um, in terms of losing some of the local papers and things like that. You know, uh, with with Facebook removing news, it it kind of affected the entire population. But um,
1: it's an ecosystem, isn't
3: it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah.
2: I would think what we are seeing with Facebook and with social media though is that people are connecting to each other within their local community and so they might be putting up things in terms of counselor so and so you know at whoever at yeah. council, can you please fix my x y and z it's not coming through a news outlet you know I don't think they're going to you know let the big news organizations see value in local newspapers anymore but I think people are getting their local news from social media and from groups and and more affinity sources. But that
1: can be really skewed. Like, if there's a debate in a community, the people who are against something get most of the attention, and the people who are for kind of shoved out in smaller communities, right? How do they get their voices heard?
2: I think that's the same with any, you know, anytime someone writes an opinion piece or a perspective or you know, we, we forget that even journalism can be slightly skewed and slanted depending on who's writing it and the point of view that they have. So I think in some ways social media groups are, you know, yes it is whoever shouts the loudest will win, but that's kind of not too different <laughs> from traditional news sources. I guess you're
1: right, I guess you're right. I mean, clearly we're an example here. We're putting on creating not news, but information uh, on a platform and that platform weren't here, it'd be very hard to communicate. Right? Now, I, you know, we got in this to keep the 30 minute situation. What are some lessons, starting with you, Tess, from this media law that was created?
0: You think these are lessons
1: for the United States and other countries? trying to bring back the localization of the media? Because a lot of, I doubt if any in the United States has an international reporter anymore.
3: Mm. I think the biggest lesson from it, to be honest, was just how powerful Facebook is as an entity, which um, we all knew it in theory but I'm not sure any of us had had quite seen it in practice. Um, so I think that was kind of the biggest takeaway. And I'm, I think it actually there will be I, I anticipate that there'll be some repercussions of this that uh, go further, you know, further into the future, even though the news has been restored to Facebook in Australia. I think that's kind of the number one takeaway is just how much of a monolith Facebook is in our lives. But I I agree with you. You know, when when we didn't know if we were going to get the news content back uh, on on Facebook, it was still through other social media and, and places like that. But when we didn't know what the situation was, uh, there was a real sense of concern that um, a lot of people, certainly that I you know interact with on Facebook, had and 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 pages that I follow were were posting about. This is going to become a situation where as you sort of mentioned earlier people can get on their soapbox scream the loudest and then who's going to be able to back that up who's going to be able to uh, you know come up against that if it needs to be argued against so I think it really the lessons were outside of like I said the, the sort of monolith of Facebook is that local, local news and accurate news is incredibly important and the way that we live our lives now news and social media is just so entwined that it's uh it, trying to trying to uh
1: to separate you, you yeah, can't to
3: separate to, you can't detangle the two and so i think that's uh, another point as well is that it's almost for a lot of people like you said particularly people in very rural areas where the local paper might've shut down and their neighbor might be 10 kilometers down the road and uh, they don't necessarily hear a lot of, uh, of what's happening. Um, I think it's, it's a really important way to stay connected and uh, we need to really think about what some of the implications of that are. Staff? You know, one of the things that came
2: to mind while you're talking, Tess, is you know people not necessarily questioning where their news comes from. And one of the things about Facebook is it's very easy to share to the point where sometimes things that are shared they become fact. I can't remember how long ago it was. It was a couple of months ago. One of the outlets reported something from the Batuta Advocate as fact, <laughs> and it was like, hang on, this is a satire newspaper. How did or your satire, you know? Uh, email newsletter, even, (laughs) how did this become reported as if it's true? And it's because people don't question. People look at Facebook, they press share, and they don't do that next level of, okay, what's the source? Where am I getting this from? And I think if we've learned anything, or if I learned anything, it's that, you know what, news still exists outside of Facebook. You could still go on to directly to the News Outlet website and get your news. So I think people just need to get back into that sort of rigor of actually doing a little bit of digging on their own rather than having everything served up to them on the Facebook platter.
1: The the last issue I want to bring to you is, you know, Facebook, all this kind of stuff is nice. But my real concern is how do we train people to be reporters, investigators, and all those kinds of skills that used to be the school of journalism's province and the like, because it's investigative journalism that's kept a lot of the bad things at bay, not the big media outlets. How do we continue that for our democracies in both countries? Because the big guys can squash you down. They, If they can turn, turn Trump off, they can turn you off. How do we get through that?
3: I'm not sure I have an answer for that, to be honest. It's- it's a big question, and it's it's absolutely something that um, you know we're, we're going to need to look at as a society. Because you're right, the implications of, of not having that are more concerning than what we've already sort of lived through. But it's it's a big question, I suppose. It, my my gut feeling is that it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, and you know, uh, teaching kids high school younger than high school. Going back to those critical thinking skills, those media literacy skills, um, and I think growing up in the world that they are, I think a lot of those kids are—they're starting off on the right foot in that regards. They—they've got a bit of a head start uh, on some of us. But it's a big question, and I'm not—I'm not 100% sure to be honest with you.
0: There is a question of responsibility. I think in that, in terms of well, the responsibility that Facebook or any other social media site has to deliver accurate news. That's not what they were there for originally. They they set out with that as a a mandate. pass And and people have gotten themselves in their own bubbles by liking only what they they like, sharing only what they're going to share. And there's sort of, okay, there's a level of personal responsibility, but you kind of can't expect everybody to have that level of responsibility for themselves. So you ask, well, the platforms themselves, what responsibilities do they now share as a place where people are getting so much of their news to share that news accurately and obviously as we as you mentioned ed deplatforming platforming is an incredibly powerful tool uh for these ones at the moment i don't think we've got any indication that these guys will necessarily use those powers responsibly and they don't feel that responsibility as of yet
1: yeah there could be another trump from the left You know, uh, we certainly have had people rise from the left, same kind of ideology that was very wrong headed. But fortunately, they burned out. Uh, I guess one of the things I'm thinking about, and I think both the United States and Australia should do this, is when I was young, we had these young people's conferences sponsored by the, social, the rotaries and so on. And these were platforms. We had to write a newspaper for the Rotary Summer Program. Uh, we had to get up in the state legislature and make a speech for something that we wanted to have happen. You can actually use these forums for good to spread this in a wider way. Why, if a school doesn't have a journalism, Uh, program, the district could hire Sean or Tess to run, uh, you know, or Stephanie to run a four-week program, and kids could contribute to that. I think we are thinking about how to kill the giant but not grow the bean.
2: I think that's a great point, because as long as people are still intellectually curious, there have always been people who want to tell the story of what's happening in the world, going back thousands of years to the very beginning of human history, there have always been storytellers and journalists are storytellers. So I don't think we're in the in danger of journalism disappearing, but I think we need to really put a very close eye on, on how that information is portrayed and who's telling it and really use those critical thinking.
1: And 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 think of the truth is like a ruler. Uh, that you gotta gauge everything that comes across to you against some set of standards. Uh, that critical thinking is clearly what we have to do in schools, uh, but we have to do it elsewhere. Uh, it's, it was surprising to me how many people during some of this business big lie thing had given up their ability to think because they were told not to. Now I'm oldest remember, I, Wasn't part of it, but this happened in Germany. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was born in 38 and 39, it was in full force. Mm -hmm. So I heard about it as a kid, but not everyone, you know, I kind of grew up with this thing, this can happen here, and we were damn close. So I think this is a conversation we could continue across the Pacific Mm -hmm. and maybe have it the conversation that continues in every living room and every community about how they make and control their own information for their own good.
0: To find out more about Pacific Conversations, visit the website edtalks.com.au and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. For weekly U.S. news and current affairs, check out Ed and I's other podcast, US of Ed, US of Ed, wherever you find good podcasts, as well as on Facebook and Twitter.